0: Mind Over John begins in just a moment. But first, let's stream ring with Mentally Gil.
1: Ah, my bar mitzvah. It's 1997 in Livingston, New Jersey, and the theme of my party is computers. There's a giant ice sculpture of a PC beside the sushi table. You know Windows 95? Try Gilly 97. I'm Gill, and my mouth is really spicy and I need a drink. Excuse me. When I watch this young version of myself, it's clear how uncomfortable I look. Now I recognize the anxiety, but unfortunately for little me, I won't be able to name the thing I'm feeling until a decade later. I became a theater kid, went to film school, and then fell in with the YouTube crowd. I've worked behind the scenes with some of the biggest social media stars around. The whole time, I've dealt with my anxiety day in and day out. You don't belong. Nobody likes you. You're boring. You're strange. You won't finish your podcast trailer. This is Mentally Gill, and I'm Gil Kruger. Get it? Because I'm Gil and I'm mentally ill, so the show is called Mentally Gil. I'm an acquired taste, okay? (laughs) In this show, I have frank conversations with some of the biggest content creators in the world to understand where they are on their mental health journey and how they work through it. My guests include Grace Helbig, Anna Akana, Lore DIY, and more. And it turns out we all have something in common. We're all nuts. So let's talk about it. Season 1 of Mentally Gill is about anxiety. It's a condition with a thousand faces hundreds of millions, really. And I want you to meet some of them. And after you do, maybe you will feel less alone. Mentally Gill is out now. Listen for Little Gill.
0: Chapter 12, in which Phileas Fogg and his companions venture across the Indian forests, and what ensued. In order to shorten the journey, the guide passed to the left of the line where the railway was still in process of being built. This line, owing to the capricious turnings of the Vindhya Mountains, did not pursue a straight course. The Parsi, who was quite familiar with the roads and paths in the district, declared that they would gain 20 miles by striking directly through the forest. Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis Cromarty, plunged to the neck in the peculiar hout provided for them, were horribly jostled by the swift trotting of the elephant, spurred on as he was by the skillful Parsi, but they endured the discomfort with true British phlegm, talking little and scarcely able to catch a glimpse of each other. As for Passepartout, who was mounted on the beast's back, and received the direct force of each concussion as he trot along, He was very careful, in accordance with his master's advice, to keep his tongue from between his teeth, as it would otherwise have been bitten off short. The worthy fellow bounced from the elephant's neck to his rump, and vaulted like a clown on a springboard, yet he laughed in the midst of his bouncing, and from time to time took a piece of sugar out of his pocket, and inserted it in Cooney's trunk, who received it without in the least slackening his regular trot. After two hours the guide stopped the elephant, and gave him an hour for rest during which Cooney, after quenching his thirst at a neighboring spring, set to devouring the branches and shrubs round about him. Neither Sir Francis nor Mr. Fogg regretted the delay, and both descended with a feeling of relief.
2: Why, he's made of iron,
0: exclaimed the general, gazing admiringly on Cooney.
2: A forged iron,
0: replied Passepartout, as he set about preparing a hasty breakfast. At noon the Parsi gave the signal of departure. The country soon presented a very savage aspect. Copses of dates and dwarf palms succeeded the dense forests, then vast, dry plains, dotted with scanty shrubs, and sown with great blocks of cyanite. All this portion of Bundelkund, which is little frequented by travelers, is inhabited by a fanatical population, hardened in the most horrible practices of the Hindu faith. The English have not been able to secure complete dominion over this territory, which is subjected to the influence of Rajas, whom it is almost impossible to reach in their inaccessible mountain fastnesses. The travelers several times saw bands of ferocious Indians, who, when they perceived the elephants striding across country, made angry and threatening motions. The Parsi avoided them as much as possible. Few animals were observed on the route, even the monkeys hurried from their path with contortions and grimaces which convulsed Passepartout with laughter. In the midst of his gaiety, However, one thought troubled the worthy servant. What would Mr. Fogg do with the elephant when he got to Allahabad? Would he carry him on with him? Impossible. The cost of transporting him would make him ruinously expensive. Would he sell him, or set him free? The estimable beast certainly deserves some consideration. Should Mr. Fogg choose to make him, passepartout, a present of Cooney, he would be very much embarrassed, and these thoughts did not cease worrying him for a long time. The principal chain of the Vindias was crossed by eight in the evening, and another halt was made on the northern slope, in a ruined bungalow. They had gone nearly 25 miles that day, and an equal distance still separated them from the station of Allahabad. The night was cold, the Parsi lit a fire in the bungalow with a few dry branches, and the warmth was very grateful, provisions purchased at Colby sufficed for supper, and the travelers ate ravenously. The conversation, beginning with a few disconnected phrases, soon gave place to loud and steady snores. The guide watched Cooney, who slept standing, bolstering himself against the trunk of a large tree. Nothing occurred during the night to disturb the slumberers, although occasional growls, front panthers and chattering of monkeys broke the silence, the more formidable beasts made no cries or hostile demonstration against the occupants of the bungalow. Sir Francis slept heavily, like an honest soldier overcome with fatigue. Passepartout was wrapped in uneasy dreams of the bouncing of the day before. As for Mr. Fogg, he slumbered as peacefully as if he had been in his serene mansion in Seville Row. The journey was resumed at 6 in the morning, the guide hoped to reach Allahabad by evening. In that case, Mr. Fogg would only lose a part of the 48 hours saved since the beginning of the tour. Cooney resuming his rapid gait, Soon descended the lower spurs of the Vindiyas, and towards noon they passed by the village of Kalanger, on the Kani, one of the branches of the Ganges. The guide avoided inhabited places, thinking it safer to keep the open country, which lies along the first depressions of the basin of the Great River. Allahabad was now only 12 miles to the northeast. They stopped under a clump of bananas, the fruit of which, as healthy as bread and as succulent as cream, was amply partaken of and appreciated. At two o'clock the guide entered a thick forest which extended several miles, he preferred to travel under cover of the woods. They had not as yet had any unpleasant encounters, and the journey seemed on the point of being successfully accomplished, when the elephant, becoming restless, suddenly stopped. It was then four o'clock.
2: What's the matter?
0: asked Sir Francis, putting out his head.
3: I don't know, officer,
0: replied the Parsi listening attentively to a confused murmur which came through the thick branches. The murmur soon became more distinct. It now seemed like a distant concert of human voices accompanied by brass instruments. Passepartout was all eyes and ears. Mr. Fogg patiently waited without a word. The Parsi jumped to the ground, fastened the elephant to a tree, and plunged into the thicket. He soon returned, saying,
3: A procession of Brahmins is coming this way. We must prevent their seeing us, if possible.
0: The guide unloosed the elephant and led him into a thicket, at the same time asking the travelers not to stir. He held himself ready to bestride the animal at a moment's notice, should flight become necessary, but he evidently thought that the procession of the faithful would pass without perceiving them amid the thick foliage, in which they were wholly concealed. The discordant tones of the voices and instruments drew nearer, and now droning songs mingled with the sound of the tambourines and cymbals. The head of the procession soon appeared beneath the trees, a hundred paces away, and the strange figures who performed the religious ceremony were easily distinguished through the branches. First came the priests, with mitres on their heads, and clothed in long lace robes. They were surrounded by men, women, and children, who sang a kind of lugubrious song, interrupted at regular intervals by the tambourines and cymbals, while behind them was drawn a car with large wheels, the spokes of which represented serpents entwined with each other. Upon the car, which was drawn by four richly caparisoned zebus, stood a hideous statue with four arms, the body colored a dull red, with haggard eyes, disheveled hair, protruding tongue, and lips tinted with beetle. It stood upright upon the figure of a prostrate and headless giant. Sir Francis, recognizing the statue, whispered,
2: The goddess Kali, the goddess of love and death, of death, perhaps,
0: muttered back Passepartout,
2: but of love, that ugly old hag, never,
0: the Parsi made a motion to keep silence. A group of old fakirs were capering and making a wild ado round the statue, these were striped with ochre, and covered with cuts whence their blood issued drop by drop, stupid fanatics, who, in the great Indian ceremonies, still throw themselves under the wheels of juggernaut. Some Brahmins, clad in all the sumptuousness of oriental apparel, and leading a woman who faltered at every step, followed. This woman was young, and as fair as a European. Her head and neck, shoulders, ears, arms, hands, and toes were loaded down with jewels and gems with bracelets, earrings, and rings, while a tunic bordered with gold, and covered with a light muslin robe, betrayed the outline of her form. The guards who followed the young woman presented a violent contrast to her, armed as they were with naked sabers hung at their waists, and long Damascene pistols, and bearing a corpse on a palanquin. It was the body of an old man, gorgeously arrayed in the habiliments of a rajah, wearing, as in life, a turban embroidered with pearls, a robe of tissue of silk and gold, a scarf of cashmere sewed with diamonds, and the magnificent weapons of a Hindu prince. Next came the musicians and a rearguard of capering fakirs, whose cries sometimes drowned the noise of the instruments, these closed the procession. Sir Francis watched the procession with a sad countenance, and, turning to the guide, said, Basati. The Parsi nodded, and put his finger to his lips. The procession slowly wound under the trees, and soon its last ranks disappeared in the depths of the wood. The songs gradually died away, occasionally cries were heard in the distance, until at last all was silence again. Phileas Fogg had heard what Sir Francis said, and, as soon as the procession had disappeared, asked.
2: What is a sati?" A sati,"
0: returned the general,
2: is a human sacrifice, but a voluntary one. The woman you have just seen will be burned tomorrow at the dawn of day. Oh, the scoundrels!
0: cried Passepartout, who could not repress his indignation.
3: And the corpse?
0: Asked Mr. Fogg.
3: Is that of the prince her husband?
0: Said the guide.
3: On independent Raja of Bundelsen. Is it possible?
0: Resumed Phileas Fogg, his voice betraying not the least emotion.
2: That these barbarous customs still exist in India, and that the English have been unable to put a stop to them. These sacrifices do not occur in the larger portion of India.
0: Replied Sir Francis.
2: But we have no power over these savage territories, and especially here in Bundelkund. The whole district north of the Vindias is the theater of incessant murders and pillage the poor wretch
0: exclaimed passepartout
2: to be burned alive yes
0: returned sir francis
2: burned alive and if she were not you cannot conceive what treatment she would be obliged to submit to from her relatives they would shave off her hair feed her on a scanty allowance of rice treat her with contempt she would be looked upon as an unclean creature and would die in some corner like a scurvy dog The prospect of so frightful an existence drives these poor creatures to the sacrifice much more than love or religious fanaticism. Sometimes, however, the sacrifice is really voluntary, and it requires the active interference of the government to prevent it. Several years ago, when I was living at Bombay, a young widow asked permission of the governor to be burned along with her husband's body. But, as you may imagine, he refused. The woman left the town took refuge with an independent Raja, and there carried out her self-devoted purpose.
0: While Sir Francis was speaking, the guide shook his head several times, and now said,
3: The sacrifice which will take place to Morrow at dawn is not a voluntary one.
2: How do you know? Everybody knows about this affair in Bandalsund. But the wretched creature did not seem to be making any resistance.
3: Observed Sir Francis. That was because they had intoxicated her with fumes of hemp and opium.
2: But where are they taking her?
3: To the pagoda of Pillay, two miles from here, she will pass the night there. And the sacrifice will take place? Tomorrow, at the first light of dawn.
0: The guide now led the elephant out of the thicket and leapt upon his neck. Just at the moment that he was about to urge Kuni forward with a peculiar whistle, Mr. Fogg stopped him, and, turning to Sir Francis Cromarty, said,
2: Suppose we save this woman. Save the woman, Mr. Fogg. I have yet twelve hours to spare, I can devote them to that. Why, you are a man of heart. Sometimes,
0: replied Phileas Fogg, quietly.
2: When I have the time.
4: Hi all, my name is April, and I very much so regret having to do this again, but I am at the point where I am desperate beyond words. Please, please don't stop reading. There is no way to encapsulate how I feel in words fully, there is no way to describe the pain I am in. So if you have time, I would appreciate you listening more than anything. Here is my story. On August 20th, I was driving on the 5 highway in Chula Vista, going approximately 65 to 70 miles per hour in the second lane, when in a matter of seconds my life was changed forever. A car parked on the left side of the freeway with no lights on suddenly pulled out in front of me, perpendicular to the road. As a result, I t-boned him at high speed. His vehicle then spun out and hit another car with two passengers in it. He left the scene of the incident somehow, it was a hit and run. I was immediately taken to the hospital and treated for injuries to my neck and back. I suffered whiplash and a severe concussion. It was truly a miracle that I made it out without any severe injuries or even with my life. If I had turned the steering wheel even just a little bit, I would not be here typing this. This incident has taken a massive toll on me, and I already struggle with panic disorder and an unspecified mood disorder which exasperates how I am able to deal with this situation. The accident has left me with trauma that will sit with me for the rest of my life. The police did little to nothing, they didn't even go after him after the accident occurred. There is no criminal investigation into this man. There is no justice. Fortunately, the other vehicle had a dash cam and got his license plate number, so I was able to get his information. This man has multiple convictions for DUI and weapons charges. Driving under the influence is clearly a pattern for him, and now that he knows he can get away with it, he will most definitely do it again. I am doing everything in my power to ensure this happens to no one else, but there isn't much I can do. An innocent person could potentially die if this man isn't His sti- insurance company eventually accepted liability, but I just learned that I will get very little money from it. The small amount of compensation will be split between the third party he hit and me, and then the 33% of what I get will go to my attorney. My mother does not make very much money, and my father does not want to support me financially in any way. I see GoFundMe as my only option at this point. So I am relying on the kindness of others to help me navigate this devastating situation. I worked as a delivery driver then, so both my car and job was taken from me in a blink of an eye. I have spent over $1,000 on Ubers, just trying to get to school. I received this money from the kind people that donated to my previous GoFundMe, but it is running out, and I still have no source of income. I rarely see my family or friends as I can't afford to visit them. I desperately need physical therapy, but again, I can't afford to get to the appointments, which are typically three times a week. On top of all that, I'm taking five classes, and the stress of this situation makes it extremely difficult for me to focus or sometimes even compose myself at school. I ran out of class today because of a panic attack. This money will allow me to get to school without spending over $30 every time, and I will be able to get the medical attention that I need. I can see my family and get food and other necessities. If you've read this far, I am beyond thankful for you listening to me and my story. Please consider helping if you are able, even just sharing this would mean the absolute world to me. I am so sorry, I absolutely hate asking others for help with things like this, but I really am stuck right now. I don't see any other way out. I relapsed into self-harm because of this situation and had very dark thoughts I cannot go into further. Please, consider or share, I'm sorry and from the bottom of my heart. Thank
1: you. Thank you April for sharing your story with us. Here on Mind Over John, we are breaking barriers of storytelling. I want you to also understand this version was based. Please share. And that's exactly what we did. If you would like to know more about April, the link to her GoFundMe is included in the description of this podcast and can also be found on mindoverjohn.com slash podlinks. Spatial thanks to Mentally Gill and April for the launch of StreamRing, a feature at built into mindoverjohn.com. Thank you for support and will return next week in Chapter 13 of Around the World in 80 Days.